This is Dollars to Donuts with Steve Portugal. Yes, it's Dollars to Donuts, the podcast where we talk with the people who lead user research in their organization. Everybody give it up for our sponsors, the Pinterest research team who work with designers, engineers, and everyone in between to build the world's most inspiring catalog of ideas. Airbnb's experience research team, making authentic local experiences possible anywhere in the world. And Balsamic, the maker of mock-ups, the rapid wireframing software that combines the simplicity of paper sketching with the power of a digital tool. To uncover compelling new insights about your users, you can get my help at Portugal.com. Buy my book, Interviewing Users, from Amazon and Rosenfeld Media. I'm hard at work on my new book about user research war stories. My guest today is Kate Lawrence. She's the Vice President of User Research at EBSCO Information Services. She's worked in both the healthcare and travel industries and is a passionate advocate for users and for user research. Welcome, Kate, to Dollars to Donuts. Thank you for having me. Why don't you begin by introducing yourself? My name is Kate Lawrence, and I am the Vice President of User Research at EBSCO Information Services. We are the leading provider of research databases and other content to libraries and institutions all around the world. And we're headquartered actually out of Ipswich, Massachusetts, a beautiful town on the North Shore of Massachusetts, north of Boston. And our parent company is actually EBSCO Industries, and they're headquartered out of Birmingham, Alabama. And EBSCO Industries is one of the 200, one of the top 200 privately held companies in the United States. And EBSCO is actually an acronym. EBSCO stands for the Elton B. Stevens Company. And it's a family-owned company since the 1940s. And again, it's one of the largest privately held companies in Alabama and one of the 200 largest in the United States. And what's interesting is one company, many different businesses. And so the largest part of EBSCO Industries is EBSCO Information Services, where I work in Ipswich, Massachusetts. But what's interesting is EBSCO Industries has lots of other businesses. For example, EBSCO owns the company that pr produces uh, the most fishing flies of any manufacturer. Um, they, own, they have real estate holdings. So it's quite diverse in that way. Does that does that create a certain culture? I mean, is and not so much EBSCO specific, but companies that are uh, that have diverse holdings. And I don't know if you can even answer this, but uh, you know, we hear a lot about you know, you work at a startup, you work at this kind of company, uh, but just you work at a very kind of unique organization. It's part of a very diverse, larger company. It is, and what what makes it fun and unique to me is every day brings something different. So the the part of the company where I am. Focused focused is the information services division. So we're, we, we work on products and services that provide essentially information, premium information to uh, information seekers around the world. And occasionally I'll get pulled into another project. So if there is, we have a, um, there's a furniture company that makes workstations. And so we did this whole research project looking at uh, what are the, what are the furniture needs of the new library? You know, the new information commons, what, what is that collaborative furniture that is needed? That's different from the study carols of yesterday. So we occasionally get pulled into projects and I've actually done a small research project on game cameras for one of our other <laughs> outdoor product companies called Pradco. So you do get, you do get these, uh, projects peppered in that keep it very interesting. Absolutely. 
it seems like the first example uh, leverages um, an area that you're focused in, that, that the information work, the information information users is already focused on the library and people using the library and the work that they're being done. And if I'm guessing the game work is is much further outside that, that's central. It's true. And the game work, the game camera work was outside of that. What we do on a day-to-day basis is our research team focuses on studying the path and the search process for information gathering, information seeking. And like you said, libraries are customers and think about libraries and think about library patrons. You have your academic market. You know, you have students as young as age six and seven and eight starting to work on research projects. I mean, it might just be the history of the Lego Corporation or finding out about Harriet Tubman, but that's research. And so we have young students, elementary school students, all the way up to 95, 98, 101-year-old public library patrons. So all of us interact with a library in some way. And that's why you see EBSCO products all over the world. You know, when you describe the, you know, the the young kids doing the Lego Corporation History Research Project, it makes me think that uh, there's some major shifts that are going to impact uh, the business that you're in and what your research is going to uncover. Education continues to change, but what are some of these larger changes that we as a as a culture are going through that are driving changes in your product and things that you that you're looking at in research? Changes are because of Google. Google has changed everything about information seeking and information gathering and search. And Google being described by many of our students, they've described Google as their oxygen, their mother, their water, their soulmate. And they are completely serious and It makes perfect sense why they would describe Google that way. But Google has been this seismic shift in the way that people conduct searches for information. So when you think about, Steve, when you, when the two of us were in college, when we had a research paper to do, we went to the library. We worked on it there. And we, do you remember, everyone remembers the smell of the shelves. You know, you went in and you, you, there's the library had a certain smell to it. You just, it, it put you in a whole different zone when you were doing research. Research is different today. It's a lot of guidance self-serve because you don't have to be because of electronic resources and you can access these materials from home. You can log into your library website from Starbucks, anywhere. You can conduct research on the go. And so you're not necessarily within sight of the librarian. You're not necessarily even on campus. It's a different experience and it actually starts in Google. So then you speak about this in a way that makes me think you've talked with a lot of people about this over the years. Students are an area of tremendous focus for the user research group at EBSCO. And as I was saying, we have students all over the world. And students, by the way, is that third grader all the way up through graduate and and doctoral students and fellows who are doing intensive research. So you have people who are doing research for a basic introductory class, and they're not particularly invested in the topic, maybe in their first semester in college, and then you have your doctoral level researchers. So when we set out to design products and experiences, and we think about interface design, we have to think about this range of abilities. And at EBSCO, our customer and our user are not always the same person. So the people that are making choices about what do we, what we call them, information products, information systems, they are choosing something that's going to be rolled out to students, I guess, and other users as well. Students with a very different, a very different uh, approach to the usage and very different knowledge of the topic of information seeking and very different level of searcher. 
sometimes I equate it to trying to please the parent through a great experience for the child. So you think about parents buying products for kids, and then you think about who, who are you trying to suit, who are you trying to serve? And, and what we're trying to do is create an experience for research that is delightful for students and then as, as a result, also, also pleases the librarian, but pleases the librarian customer because it's serving students so well. So that's an interesting area to think about if, as you said, Google has really, really changed things. And I, you know, I, I've done a little bit in this area. So I have, um, you know, a little knowledge, which is dangerous. And as they say, um, I mean, and when you describe these two groups, the, 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 li- the, the people providing the service, the facilitators, you kind of use the metaphor of parents, librarians and, and people in that role. You know, my casual observation is that uh, this shift, you know, as you, you know, the, the shift that's Google and kind of everything that, that falls under the umbrella that you related, uh, how they're experiencing it. And this is just, this is natural, how they're experiencing it as professionals and people with a lot of history with tools as they've uh, evolved and how these students are experiencing it. They're looking at that, they're looking at that shift very differently. They do look at the shift differently. And it reminds me of when... <laughs> I remember when Mark Zuckerberg put on that hoodie and started wearing that outfit to work. It was upsetting to people. There was a certain generation and a certain group of people who are really offended that someone who runs a company is going to show up in a hoodie. And I think like it's kind of like when parents say, oh, the kids today, there's a sense that we don't have to do it the way our parents did it. We don't have to kind of treat research like the Oldsmobile that my parents had to drive. Like, I don't, you know, look, mom, I don't have to do research the way you did it because I don't have to be in the library and you had to be in the library. So I think we're all still adapting and coming to terms with the new rules of research and the new way that students are are getting through and studying in college. It's very different. And when you said... It sounds like you've studied a lot. We we do go out and interview users. We do employ ethnography and we sit with students on the floor floor of the coffee shop in, you know, in Las Vegas or right outside their community college or we sit with them uh, after swim practice in Texas where they're, you know, in in a breezeway in a library trying to do a little research on the go right after swim practice. And so we sit and we watch their organic search process because until you see it, it's hard to believe that it's that it is the way that it is and it's piecemeal and it's uh, it doesn't necessarily have a solid strategy. Like this is how I'm going to go in. This is how I'm going to do it. There's a lot of trial and error. There's a lot of trial and error. And it absolutely starts in Google because they feel safe there. And starting your research in Google by getting this foundation of your topic, it reduces anxiety. And research can be for some students a very anxious process. I'm thinking sort of of the uh, the network of I want to use the word stakeholders in, a, in, in, the, in the broadest sense possible and that you've talked about students, um, certainly for younger students, there's the parents, uh, there's the people that are providing them, uh, let's just call them librarians, is that the right term? People that are providing them with these tools. Yes. And those are kind of all outside. And then inside your organization, there's your you and your folks that are going out and talking to these people. There's somebody that is taking what you've learned and acting on it in some way. What very generally, how does that, what does that node look like? That is at EBSCO, what we have is evidence-based product development. And we've embedded user research into the product management organization for this reason. So what will typically happen 
is we have achieved in the last, I would say, 12 to 18 months, we've been able to achieve alignment. And so we understand for user research what is coming 12, 18 months from now. So we're in front of it. We're doing the research now. And so that was one of my key learnings when I first started the group and I first started doing user research. I did every single project that came my way. And we joke about the year of yes. You know, Shonda Rhimes just wrote that book called The Year of Yes. And I said, I, I lived that year. And you, we, I said yes to everything just to get the demand so that I could get the resources. And what happens when you do that is then you're doing research on everything, but strategic alignment is critical. And so now we're, we're very much aligned with what the product development cycle is. And we're able to do the research at the outset instead of what used to happen, and this is typical of many companies, years ago, it was, let's do usability testing before we launch. And that is a tough situation for anyone to be in because then you're this kind of glorified version of QA and you're just, you don't have any chance to make an impact if something isn't testing well. Can, can we pause that thread and can we go back to something? I want to talk more about, uh, you know, you know, how you've, how this has become adopted and integrated. Um, but can we go back to, you know, this this earlier point, I think, and, and, and sort of who's involved in it to me is seems really challenging. So you are sort of uncovering new paradigms. I think they're, they're kind of, they're transgressive paradigms, which is my word, not yours, but they are, they're changing the way that we think about uh, how people are searching, you know, what outcomes look like for, for information problems and so on. You've you've established you know how that works between different parts of the the organization internally, and again, I'm just I'm projecting here. But if if I'm in the business of selling products to these librarians and these products, it's what you said before about trying to please these different audiences. These products uh, have to they reflect a new model for how the how people are going to use them. But that new model might be a little I don't know how is that new model being received by the librarians by the people that are sort of selecting and, and rolling out the kinds of tools that you have to offer. I have been so encouraged by the librarian reaction to the research because one of the talks I, I give, one of the themes of a talk I give on a regular basis is called Student Researchers, The Reality Show or The Realities of Student Research because it's very different and it's librarians who come up to me afterwards and say, thank you, you're, you're, you're validating what I'm seeing and now I, have, now I have greater context. And also many of our findings support the role of the librarian in an active partnership with faculty. Let me give you an example. You are sitting in your intro to philosophy class. You're a freshman at you know, University of uh, Virginia, and you're there, and all of a sudden you hear, I'm getting a research assignment. And so this kind of fills you with a little bit of anxiety. And the professor is giving information about you have to use scholarly sources, things have to be peer reviewed. You're getting kind of the elements of the rubric. So New York Times, Time Magazine, these are not these are not written for academics. These are not written for an academic audience. They're not peer-reviewed. They're not considered scholarly peer-reviewed materials. So that's another point of anxiety for students because they have to go to materials they may not be familiar, as familiar with. Something amazing happens when in addition to the faculty member, your professor assigning this work, there is an amazing phenomenon that occurs when a librarian is brought in to the classroom, okay, taken out of the library. He or she leaves the library and is in an active partnership with the professor talking about this is how to do this. This is how you navigate the library website to find these scholarly databases from EBSCO, etc. It's the equivalent of when your parents, both your mom and your dad say, 
Catherine, we'd like to speak with you. Something in you is queued up to listen and you're, you're more apt to learn it and absorb it as opposed to the professor saying, well, next Tuesday, you're going to meet in the library and the librarian's going to walk you through X or Y. So what happens when we talk about this is some of these findings, they empower librarians to advocate for a more active role in this process of teaching students information literacy skills. And that's exciting to see when they say, this is going to help me help my students. And they appreciate that. And I've, I've, been, I've been overwhelmed by just how wonderful the librarian community is and how supportive our customers are of our work. That's really fabulous. There's something too. Can you expand a little bit on this this notion of um, uh, you're talking about the kind of the librarian in the library and then the librarian in the classroom? Is there there's some kind of frame shift that's happening there? There is. And so think about the amount of effort it takes you when you're in the library to get up, leave your laptop unsupervised, walk over to the librarian desk and ask a question that's actually harder than any of us might imagine. And so also when you're in the library, what we're hearing from students is often they're collaborating or they're having a meeting and they're with other people. So to interrupt that and get up and go ask for help is hard. And another obstacle is some students don't know how to ask. And I have a customer I've worked with over in Europe who said that they actually post signs at the reference desk that say, this is, you know, how to ask, you know, ways to frame your question, because that's an obstacle. And then we've had students say to us, you know, I, I want to, they actually feel very positively about the librarians. They'll have live chat. And they said, oh, the librarian came to my class. He or she is so nice. And, but there's still, are you using a librarian? Are you asking, are you using librarian services? Are you going to the reference desk? No, I'm just asking my friend or I'm asking my roommate. And the reason that is happening is goes back to what I said about a lot of this searching is guided self-serve and the guided part is in the self-serve part is it's 11 o'clock. They're home. They're on the couch. They're not in the library per se. And so who's nearby? That's your go-to. Can you talk a little about the, I don't know, mechanics, logistics, challenges, you know, these kinds of uh, the people that you're doing research with, and then you describe some really interesting contexts that you're in as well. Are there things that you've had to figure out to make that kind of an established process for your group? So working with students is, is fascinating. We also research physicians. We research nurses because EBSCO has medical products. We research, again, the public library patron, which is all of us from the time we're two or, you know, two months old to the time, you know, when we're a hundred and something years old, we're, we have relationships with our public library and we also research corporate users. So we're at the, at EBSCO's user research team, in our team, we are researching people all the time. And I always say that our most important job is matching method to question because Everyone gets really excited about big contextual inquiry, ethnography studies, but really that's not appropriate in every scenario. It's more of a tool when you're examining markets, you know, like let's study the public library patron, let's study college students, et cetera. But you know, what I find one of our greatest challenges is we, we have to know where to spend our time. And so we rely on we 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 rely on this technique of that I talked about with the strategic 
strategic alignment to understand what what's coming, what are the priorities, and how can we do research to best support that. And we have some great product managers and product directors who help, who always come and knock on our door and say, I've got this thing coming up. I'm going to need research for it. And so we're culturally, we're at that point where we're not having to chase people down anymore. They're actually coming to us and, and we have a backlog and we have a wait and we conduct probably close to 80 studies a year. And we, we hope to increase that with every new person we add to the team. So, I mean, your point that you know not everything is not everything needs to be a contextual research study. Uh, what what are some other methods that uh, that you that you rely on? We have used we've used lots of different methods. So we've used traditional surveys. We have subscribed to Qualtrics and we also, usertesting.com has been a great resource for us because it's allowed us to, you know, just do more work in a shorter amount of time. And it's a way to kind of expand the group without adding resources. I will tell you though, some of our most fun work has been with methods that were new to the group. Like for example, we did a modified video diary study because we study students and we study students who are under the age of 18. And so we deal with legal issues and consent issues. And one of the things that's challenging about researching 14-year-olds, middle schoolers and early high schoolers, is that especially 14, 15-year-old young men, boys, they don't necessarily, they're not the most talkative group in the world. And so I had read somewhere that Google had put video cameras in envelopes and mailed them off and asked students to track, asked younger kids to track themselves searching, etc. So we basically sent off these video cameras. And I think I only spent $50 on each one because we, we weren't sure we were going to get them back. So we sent them off in these padded envelopes with some tasks for users to complete. And it was great. And it's a method that we want to use again, because we got the quiet 14-year-old boys, we got them talking. And they told us lots and lots about how they conduct research and what they're looking for. And they evaluated screens for us. And every single video camera came back. Not a single one was damaged. It was a great method. And it was, and it was so much more successful than it would have been if we'd had them in a room asking questions. Because they had the, sort of the, their own space to respond. Yeah, and it was this, it's the selfie generation. And so it was just this kind of extended selfie. And uh, it was this extended selfie. And it was, a, it was pr- really precious. It was precious seeing, seeing the things. Just, they took pride in it. They created, uh, they created a little movie of their, of their life and how they conduct research. And, and we got to be privy to that. I mean, the challenge is if you put those 14-year-olds in a room, because they're under 18, we have the parents in there as well. So you've got the researcher who's like a second parent and then another parent. And it just, it, 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 it's not an opportunity. It's not a situation where they're very talkative in person. But we did, we did manage to get some information out of them through the video cameras. Your your point the selfie the selfie generation reminds me of uh, this great video uh, from a couple of students. I want to say there were two Canadian students that were living in Japan. They were undergraduate students, and they were doing these sort of mini auto ethnographies, for lack of a better term, where they did one video where they ordered pizza and they showed they showed what the interface looked like. And um, you know, I mean, Japan is such a great place to talk about how things are different than what your normal reference frames are. So they kind of called them all out. And then when the pizza came, they sort of showed what the food looked like. They went through sort of uh, like the whole user journey, you know, to use a, to use some jargon. They went through that whole journey in a very delightful youtube kind of way. And it, it made me think about, um, you know, maybe self-reporting is, you know, culturally can take on more of a, more of a role. And I feel like, oh, you just, you just proved my hypothesis with, uh, with your, with your camera study. 
Well, you know, the raw self-reporting, that's what I love because so often when you're filling out a survey, your self-report, our self-reporting, I mean, this is why we go study users in the wild because people do things differently than they say they will. And I always tease my husband because he's the only person when you go to the physician for your annual physical, you know, the physician will say, how many times a week do you exercise? Like how, you know, do you eat all your vegetables, et cetera? And he, he tells the truth. And I said, no one ever tells the truth. No one ever self-reports accurately and they account for that. So, you know, but, uh, he does. And this is why we study people in their environments. This is why we, when we go out, we always come back with new information that's so fascinating to folks because, you know, within the walls of our, our company in EBSCO here in Ipswich, we, you know, we make assumptions like everyone does. And then you go out and you get this raw data and it's exciting. So I like the idea of an ethnography app. And I like the idea of the raw data capture because I want that it's those words and those truths, I think from users that they pivot products and they, they really launch products that are so much better targeted and better suited for the users. How do you help these folks feel comfortable or feel like they're doing the right thing? The same way I work to make people successful and, I mean, and then comfortable in an in-person interview. So let me give you an example. Years ago, I had a boss who said to me, the reason you're good at usability testing, Kate, is you serve it up cold. You don't give any emotion through the process. So if someone's doing something right or someone's doing something wrong, they can't read it on your face. And I was proud of this for about 15 minutes. And then I started to realize over the years that that Cruella DeVille kind of cold fish approach to usability testing and user interactions is actually awful. And the reason it's awful is because you need a genuine connection with people for them to tell you their truths. And I have learned, I learned that the hard way as a researcher. And so when you connect with someone in person, it's that warmth, it's that finding common ground that's important so you can get you can get information from that person. They can tell you what's painful about the research process, or they can tell you, oh, I'm trying to book an online cruise and this is what I don't understand. And then you can actually take those words and take that wisdom and go back and tell the product team, like, this is how you can really help these, these users, these customers. But you can do the same thing if it's not in person. If you have a self-reporting tool, like when we did the video diary study, we wrote instructions like we were talking to seventh graders, because if you send them a packet that reads like, you know, tax filing instructions, you're not going to get any answers and you're not going to get any video cameras back. So we put ourselves in the shoes of the user. What is their reading level? What is, what, how are they likely to talk about this? What terms, I mean, they're not talking about information literacy. They're talking about finding articles for a paper. So we, we try very hard to speak their language. And I think that's, that's one of the skills I value. It's one of the traits I value most in our researchers is the ability to adapt and understand and listen and then adjust accordingly which you can't do with the instructions. You have sort of one shot at that. You have one shot at the instructions. And so you have to write on their level. You have to consider yourself as the user. And you may have to do some sort of pre-survey or pre-work in order to get, in order to get a sense of how, how they're going to process the information. For the video diary study, our researcher, Lynn Lynn and myself, we actually tested the testing instructions. We went through several rounds with people saying, you know, do you know what to do here? And you have to. So often we're testing the survey or testing the test instructions to make sure that we're being clear. Right. The research research artifacts are a, they're a designed tool. You have to test them just like anything else that has to be tested. 
Yeah. And I think that, I think that we can all get to a point where we feel comfortable, like, okay, I've done this kind of test before and this was understandable, but you know, recent experiences, I've had a couple of surveys that were challenging. We got feedback after the fact, like this was challenging or, and so now we're trying to be better about understanding how long the survey should take someone and then adjusting compensation accordingly. Because we had a survey that we thought we, I think we gave a $50 Amazon gift card for, but it ended up taking people almost 40 minutes. And so we realized we have to be better about understanding the amount of effort and how we're going to compensate for that. Can I go back to your uh, Cruella DeVille? I know. Do you like that? Uh, <laughs> I do. Um, and so, because I think this is this is an interesting personal style of, of fieldwork thing. Um, and I sort of, I'd love to get you to talk a little more about, you sort of learned what not to do. And I wonder if you could characterize what your approach is now in terms of common ground and, and so on. So when we were talking about the usability testing and serving it up cold, the whole approach was very kind of generic and, you know, show no emotion. So you're just getting, you, you, people are succeeding or failing. It was very metrics based, like, oh, did they succeed in this task to add X to their cart or whatever it was? And so kind of, I think as a person, you evolve to start to understand that it's about the holistic experience. It's about it's not about this one slice of the UI. It's about this journey of, I was in online travel at the time when that happened. And it's about this journey of how do I start to think about what trip I want to book for my honeymoon or what flights I want to book or what vacation package destination I'm thinking about, et cetera. So as you start to think about the whole journey, you realize that you're not just, it's not about just succeeding or failing. And so the warmer tone, you know, you kind of go from Cruella de Vil to, I guess more, you know, I was to more of like the Dr. Oz who's asking the questions about why and trying to, trying to unearth and dig at the whys and, and trying to unearth those pain points and trying to look at it from a standpoint of empathy and understanding and not just let's see how long it takes this user, this participant, how long it takes this person to find the shopping cart button. It's really about what are your struggles what if I could, if you could change any one thing about this process or this product, what would it be? You know, when you're, we always say to users, we always say to students, when we study them today, we say the process, how does it make you feel when you get a research paper assignment? How would you complete this sentence? The process of, you know, finding research for my paper makes me feel, and we ask them to fill in the blank. And through those, those words and the way they complete the sentence, we start to get that picture. And I don't think it's a coincidence that EBSCO and, and our product development team and as a company, we're starting to consider emotion when we think about not only the process of buying products as a librarian, but the process of using them as students and other end users. It's not a coincidence that our research group is all women. I think that we've brought that emotional dimension into the discussion in a way that had not been present prior. So when what I heard is that, uh, you know, a way to bring that emotion in is in the questions that you're asking. Yep. In the questions that we're asking, and also we're going to be exploring later this year, emotion analytics. There's a company right in our backyard here in Massachusetts called Affectiva, and they're out of the MIT labs. And they, they, it's an emotion analytics product. And it's something we're very interested in because for many people conducting research, we have this wonderful researcher on our team, our lead qualitative, our lead researcher. Her name's Deirdre Costello. She's a librarian and a researcher. And she likes to say conducting research for many students is like eating your vegetables. And so you don't necessarily look for the emotions of they're jumping up and down or they like, you're not expecting people to look like they just, you know, hit the 
the winning lottery ticket, but you're looking for certain emotions to register on their face as they're finding the path forward toward these scholarly resources. And so this is something that we as a team are going to be exploring later this year is how do we how do we capture and quantify those emotions and what about the emotional state changes with certain design changes or changes when you're looking at different products? We're going to be exploring that. And that is, that's really new research for our group. We're excited about it. And this is a tremendous evolution from the from this Corel de Ville era of sort of looking at metrics. Now you're looking at a lot of other kinds of things. Well, you know, that same boss said to me, and actually he's a really, he's a wonderful little smart guy. We were all learning at the time. He was the one who said to me, I want the findings written up as a white paper, really in white paper format. And so I did that and I would pass people in the hallway and say, hey, did you read that report? And they'd say, yeah, yeah, looked looked great. And I could tell that they never read it. And so the next time I did a usability study, I said to my boss at the time, I will write the white paper, but I'm also going to create this parallel version. And I actually based my reports, I did them in PowerPoint, but I made them very visual. And I based them on the format of that book written by the editor, I think of Men's Health or Men's Fitness Magazine called Eat This, Not That. Because someone, someone somewhere in my life had that book at their house and I was leafing through it. And it was these visuals like, look, if you go to Panera, don't eat this, eat that. You know, this is healthier for you. So it, and it was just very visual. And so in 10 minutes, you get a sense of, all right, if the only option is Jack in the Box, this is the healthy option, Jack in the Box. And so I did the report, like, look, users don't understand this, but they understand that. And I did it in a very visual way, modeled after that book. And all of a sudden we got traction. All of a sudden the people who weren't reading the reports were calling me into meetings and saying, I want more of this. How can I get more? I love this. And so creating results that tell a story in a visual way is very important. Having said that, we also in our group now, we do write the white paper and we do speak at conferences and do different things with our findings because we need we need a variety of different uh, deliverables to satisfy our customers. Right. You have different audiences. So you create. We absolutely do. Yeah. Can we talk a little about, uh, um, you made the, the comment, it's not surprising that, that your group is, I don't know if you should say it was all women. We are. We're all women and we have a male intern in the summers who is wonderful. So we are certainly welcoming of, <laughs> we're welcoming of, all, of women and men, but at the moment we are all women. Yes. I mean, what do you think that's about? What's, uh, cause I think if you look at the field of user research in general, and this is just anecdotally for me, it's. You know, I think predominantly women is my guess. Uh, someone may be rolling their eyes at that, but that's my sense of it. I don't know. What do you think is 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 happening there culturally? Half of my group also have librarian degrees, and I think the librarian, I think librarians, you find mostly women. So, I. I do think the qualities I look for in a researcher, you know, we are, of course, gender blind. And so I think these qualities can exist in anyone. I think, you know, some of the qualities I look for, we want people who are highly adaptable, curious, great communicators is key. And I was mentioning Deirdre previously. Deirdre used to be a writer. She taught writing at Boston College. So the ability to write, synthesize, distill and synthesize findings into a report that is digestible and, you know, spot on, that is very challenging. And there are people who can do it well. And I really strive to find those people for the team. So great writing skills. And part of that writing is storytelling. So I'm, I'm not sure that if you said to someone, who do you think has better communication skills, men or women? It's a combination of communication, analytical skills, uh, 
research skills. I, I think it's just coincidence that we have all women, uh, but boy, we have a terrific group. I mean, I always say this is, I'm, I'm loving this part of my career. I'm loving it because the chemistry we have in the group. And I just, you know, sometimes when you're in a job that's frustrating, you think, well, maybe someday. And I finally found my someday. So it's, it's nice to know that it's out there. I finally found my someday. Seems like that's a song they should play at somebody's wedding. I know. That's, I know. Something. I don't know. <laughs> but I finally found that environment. And that's great. It's, but you know, part of that is you have to build the culture that respects user research and you have to be, you know, my boss is very supportive of our work. And if he wasn't, we would go nowhere. I mean, you have to be in the right place in the organization, working with and for the right people. And you have to hire well, you know, we actually have an opening right now and we've decided that we're going to just wait for the right person to find us. Because when you go out and you recruit, the person you want isn't necessarily available at that moment. And you may not find that person. And then you end up with a pool of six people, you narrow it down to three and then two, and then you end up choosing that person who maybe in a different world you wouldn't have chosen. So we just have this fantasy that the the right person will find us. (laughs) Well, and I think uh, you know you, your your catchphrase uh, is uh, "I finally found my my someday." Uh, but you're talking about building it. I, I think you built it. I built it, and so when you when I started at EBSCO, it was let's see, uh, it was almost five years ago. And so when I started at EBSCO, user research really hadn't emerged to be its own entity yet. And I remember my husband, I came via the information architect path up through user experience. And my husband would always say to me, why don't you focus on the research? It's what you like the best. And at the time, research was, there was a lot of usability testing and, or at least my version of it. And I just said, I don't know that I could do that all the time. But he said, but you love it. And I said, you're right, I do. So I took a job at EBSCO and my first job here, I was focused on usability, but I was also helping to write requirements. Like I was a requirements analyst for these, these products and platforms. And I remember at the time I conducted, I think two usability tests. And I realized there was this big need. There was a major need for someone to focus exclusively on usability and user research. And previously this had fallen to multiple people. It was a dimension of, of many people's jobs. And I went into my boss at the time named Ron and I said, Ron, I would like to focus just on the user research piece. And he said, well, I can't let you do that because I still need you to be able to write requirements if I need you to do that. And I said, okay, I'll make you a deal. If you let me do more usability and user research, I will write requirements whenever, whenever you need me. And he said, yes, because you're definitely not going to have enough work for just the usability piece. And I said, okay, deal. So we had a deal and I never wrote another requirement because the demand, that was my year of yes. I just, I said yes to every project that came my way. And then I was in technology at the time. And then I moved over to product management and things really took off because then I was embedded in the product development life cycle. Is there a point at which uh, doing research sort of morphs into leading research? There is. And that is, you know... (sighs) how a bill becomes a law or how a girl becomes a woman, you know, it's really, it's quite a transformation. (laughs) It is like all of a sudden it's, it's, it's growth, it's evolution. And what starts to happen? I remember you go from doing testing and doing research to talking about it, to evangelizing for it, to finding it a home within the organization. And that's where the leadership engine kicks in. And 
I think one of the reasons I feel, I, I feel well supported at EBSCO in that people value the work of my team. And when they promoted me to vice president, that was really exciting for me personally, and also for the research in the organization to be given that level of visibility. And uh, that was exciting. And it's, it's, it means a lot to our customers that we have that we have prioritized this as a function within our company and our organization. And so when they buy our products or they invest in a partnership with us, they understand that we are looking at our users 24/7. We have a we have a relentless and a passionate focus on our on our users and customers. And you described those different milestones in that evolution and was was becoming part of the product management organization a significant point along those different stages? Absolutely, because products, this is where the products this is where the products live and this is where they're created and this is where they are evolved. And so when we were located in technology, that was fantastic because we were we were where things were being built. But a lot of the upfront research needed to happen. It needed to happen sooner than we were getting it in technology. And so moving us over to product development was a real culture shift. And it was an important one in our growth. And something in user experience, I constantly had that debate of, should I be in, at the time at other companies, it was, should I be in marketing as a UX person? Should I be in marketing or should I be in technology? And actually at the time, I always opted for technology. And so it was a shift for me to be at EBSCO and say, you know what? I think we should be in product management. And I think that's the right place for us because my whole career, I'd actually fought as a UX person to stay in technology. But at EBSCO, it made more sense for, for us to be in, in product management. And now, you know, again, we, we can achieve that alignment a lot better because we're where those discussions are happening. I want to follow up on something else you said as well. Um, you described these qualities that that are just so essential in, in that you look for in researchers. How are those? How would someone make those qualities visible? That is a great question because how do you how in a, in an hour interview do you say oh well I'm curious I'm a great communicator I can distill down findings I always say the great researchers are like Navy SEALs they go in they adapt they accomplish their mission, they leave without a trace. Because you want to be efficient, you want to go in, you want to get the job done, and you want to come out, and you want to leave people kind of unruffled and, and let them go on with their lives. And so I look at communication skills before I even look at research skills. So for example, you wouldn't believe some of the cover letters we get or some of the emails. And you know, I, I have very, I actually have, I can't say I have a low tolerance, I have no tolerance for things like bad writing and bad grammar. And so that because our work is published externally, that's just a deal breaker for me. Um, there's a curiosity and a work ethic that we look for. I just wish you could sit in sit in our team meetings and meet some of the researchers. And and it's funny, my husband actually calls Deirdre, our lead lead researcher. He calls her the Oracle because she knows everything. I mean, you can sit, you can sit her with a fifth grader to talk about research, and she can make a connection. And that yet she's amazing with um, you know sixty year old esteemed department heads of, um, you know, medical or surgical departments when we're doing physician research. So she can, she can do it all. And, uh, my friends, I remember my friends and I, when we were all dating before any of us got married, we had this joke about, we're looking for the guy who's tent to tuxedo. You know, he can go and rough it in the, in, in nature. And then he knows which fork to use at the black tie dinner. And I think as researchers, that's what I appreciate. I appreciate that, you know, the, the person who can kind of rough it in the wild and then be completely comfortable at, you know, a black tie dinner and everything in between, because we research everybody and you have to be able to connect across that continuum. 
Can you talk a little about, so we've talked about your team and, and sort of growing your team and a bit a bit about the history. What can you say about kind of the makeup of the team, things that have changed or new ways you found to expand the team? We actually just added a user research recruiter and this has changed my life in such a positive way. In fact, one of our researchers, Deirdre, said to me, have you ever had something amazing come into your life and you didn't, and it solved a problem and you didn't even really realize that you had? And so we have a new research recruiter whose name is Kristen Arakalian, and we brought her on for one purpose, and that is to help us curate higher quality samples. And when I say higher quality participant samples, I don't mean, okay, every person on the panel has to be an Einstein. I mean, sometimes... We you know we're, we're sending surveys to people who aren't being responsive, or you know we have these dead email addresses, or we are you know we wanted medical nurses and we ended up with a surgical nurse. So we just need to make sure that when we have a study ready to go, we have our we're building out these participant panels and these participant uh, these databases that are going to support our work, and it has been incredible. And so now. As researchers, we get to focus on the research, and she is doing all of this terrific work building our ground game, making sure she's connecting. I mean, here we are in Boston, and we have so many universities and so many hospitals in our in our backyard. And so she's making these connections and she's on social media and she is making, she's making lists and adding these people to our panels. So when we have a research study and it's ready to go, we can actually launch it that day or we can start it that day. That's been a, that's been a life changer. And it's, and it's, I wish I knew to do this sooner because my solution was always to add more researchers. And there's a lot of stress around recruiting. I used to say recruiting was our largest pain point, pain point solved. It's, it's been wonderful. What do you think is uh, her secret superpower or not so secret superpower that, that makes that work? What makes it work is I didn't go looking for a, a user research recruiter. And in the, in the instance of our recruiter, Kristen had all the skills that I needed. I need someone who's polished. I need someone who's a great communicator and has those writing skills and understands how to kind of reach out to someone she's never met before. And she has all the qualities that we need. And she had no experience doing user research recruitment. And I didn't care because I knew she'd be right for the job. And I knew her prior to EBSCO. And so I took her out for lunch and I said, I have this opportunity for you. And she said, well, you know, do you want to give me a description? And I said, no, because then you'll think too much about it. And I just, I need you to come and start and and see how you like it. And she did. And she jumped right in and she's made our, she is curating these samples for us that are yielding um, tremendous feedback. And we don't have the trial and error of, okay, we sent the survey to 20 people and only six responded. And who knows someone who's a teacher in a K-12 school? You know, we don't have to go the friends and family route and we don't have to bootstrap it anymore. We have a recruiting operation and it's absolutely changed our lives for the better. That's fabulous. Are there, um, you mentioned earlier that uh, the things that you do or the work that you do is is published in public and you go to, you give talks about it. Um, Are there stories or, or, or recent successes or things that you can share with us? There are. And uh, one of our researchers named Lin Lin is located in Shanghai. She's based in Shanghai in China. And she conducted research on Chinese students and how they were similar or different than many of the U.S.-based students that we study on a frequent basis. And 
I'm really impressed by her findings because Lynn is this researcher. You send her out and she comes back with gold every single time. And it's impressive because when you research students in China, what's missing from their research experience is Google because of government sanctions. And so what's interesting is Chinese students have a similar approach in that they get very anxious about research at the outset upon receiving the assignment. But research for Chinese students is episodic. And at each of those, in each of those episodes of research, it's a combination of open web resources. So China doesn't allow access to Google. They have something called Baidu instead. So there's, there's open web resources and there's these episodes of research that happen. So over the three weeks of the assignment, there's these episodes of research. And in each of the episodes, it's a mix of open web and scholarly resources, which is through the library website. And also consultation with the professor and perhaps a librarian is interspersed, is intermixed in there. That's very different. The research in episodes is very different than what we've seen and what we've documented in U.S. students. In U.S.-based students, what we see is research in two microbursts. There's a flurry of activity when the research assignment is made, is given. And the first microburst is that activity related to sizing and scoping. And so you're on Google. You are looking for, you're trying to understand your topic better. And that Google search leads you to Wikipedia. And there's a lot of open web searching that's happening. Then there's a period of dormancy. And we assumed that during that dormancy, it's this procrastination and there's kind of shame and, and, and bad feeling about that because and dread and oh no, but no, there's not. It's about efficiency and students are, they're locked and loaded because they did their open web. They understand, all right, Google and Wikipedia, like I have a grasp of my topic. And then there's the second microburst and the second microburst of activity is right before it's due. And that's when you go into the library website and you access the scholarly resources and you find those articles and you find those eBooks and you find those videos that are peer reviewed and scholarly and meet the criteria that your professor has, has set forth. So if you're a librarian, the reason that that information is valuable to you is because you understand that your opportunity to influence the student research process in the U.S., is at the outset, is during that first microburst of activity, is getting into the classroom with the professor and, you know, introducing the research topic and the scholarly resources that are available to them. Because most likely at the tail end of that, during that second microburst, the U.S.-based students are, it's that flurry of activity related to finishing the project. It's not about, I'm going to go consult with the librarian per se. So we love, we love having an international research team because we have the opportunity to do these cultural comparisons and they're fascinating. It seems like part of there's, there's many elements there. It seems like one element is that by looking at what the behavior is in, in a Chinese for a Chinese student, it highlights uh, behaviors in the in the American use case that you might not have thought to reflect on until you see how it plays out differently. It's true. And that's the kind of research that helps us gain an understanding of students, you know, students in China and students in the U.S. But it also helps us advocate for and help our cust advocate for our customers and, and empowers our customers to advocate for themselves. So that's the kind of research that matters because our customers walk away and say, great, I can now, I can now uh, 
evangelize to have myself as part of the assignment process or in the classroom because I've got this this research that's been documented. So we do a fair share of, we write the white paper or we'll give a talk at, at library conferences or we'll, we do a lot of traveling to our customers and talking about our findings and actually collaboratively conducting research with them. One of our favorite activities that we've been doing more of is to travel to customer sites and invite in three or four students or three or four nurses or whatever product we're, we're looking at to come in and demonstrate their search process live. And we, it's very interactive. Like people will say, well, did you know you could do this? Or what about this? And it, it, it brings that, again, it's the reality show of how users are interacting with um, different products and different services. And it's fascinating to watch. And, and usually that exercise garners some great enthusiasm because it opens people's eyes. And I will tell you something. I have been very, I have been really pleasantly surprised by the great questions that many students ask around participant privacy and around sharing of information. And, you know, I think many people think millennials are just posting their whole lives on Facebook and Instagram, and they're very knowledgeable about privacy. And I've been very impressed. And and we've had to adapt. We've had to make sure that we talk about how this information will be shared. And we used to kind of ask casually, like, can we take a picture of you? So as we're thinking about these results, blah, blah, blah. Sometimes we will ask that, but certainly not as much as we did because we've had a lot of students say, no, thanks, or I'm not on Facebook anymore. And I, I, you know, when they talk about social media, it's not about this mass sharing. It's they're really kind of curating their online profile, their social media presence. And they, they're not careless about it. They're very thoughtful and they care about privacy and they read the small print as they should. I've been very impressed with how seriously our participants take that. And as a result, we are very specific in, in our releases and we, we deal with children. So when we talk about what are the qualities you look for, certainly good judgment, ethical research practice is critical. It's the most important thing at the top of the, at the very, very top of our list. Because without that good judgment, I'm putting way too much in your hands that you're responsible for. And if I can't trust you, there's no job. Wow, that's really good. Can you talk a little about your own background? My background is actually, so I studied sociology as an undergrad, and I loved, loved, loved studying sociology, and I loved the research element of sociology. And I went to graduate school for public health, and public health is, and, and epidemiology being um, part of public health is fascinating because you're looking at what programs, what interventions have an impact on a population? So unlike medicine, which is the study of, you know, is curation, you're about, it's curative, public health and epidemiology is about prevention. And so you're looking at behaviors and you're looking at interventions and you're tracking those things over time. So the research element is very heavy in that. So I like to say that chapter one of my career was in healthcare and my job understanding end user needs and building products that met end user needs. There was a health reporter for the Boston Globe named Betsy Lehman, and she was a cancer patient at Dana-Farber in Boston. And because of a medical error, she actually passed away because she got four times the dose of a medication that she should have. And she did not survive that. And so this was heavily covered in the Boston area. And my hiring was a part of the staffing up that happened following um, Betsy and one other person was um, was severely injured as a result of a medication overdose. So what they did, the 
the partner's healthcare system decided every every unit is going on this online order entry. And so I was part of the staffing up that happened uh, following that incident. And our job was to understand, okay, this online order entry, we're replacing the pen and paper the clipboard at the end of the bed, it's different in a labor and delivery unit. It's different in an emergency department. And so my job was to understand and then understand the the user needs and translate that into system requirements. And it was just an amazing job because we we did nursing shifts. So I would work 11 p.m. to 7 in the morning on a labor and delivery unit and see the workflow there and understand how that product needed to be customized. So that was was really fantastic work um, in the healthcare field. And then I went into online travel for the second chapter of my career. And online travel is similar in its complexities because you're thinking about booking cruises, booking vacations, uh, and and the complexities involved in that. And so booking engine, it was all about conversion and getting people into the booking engine and helping them shop and compare. I was at TripAdvisor for a little while and primarily doing information architecture and usability work. And that was, online travel is fascinating. And to this day, I think about some of the things I learned about, you know, why Kayak made some of the decisions they made about their filters and things like that. It's, it's, I still refer to some of those points because it's a complex product and you, you winnow down these results by using filters and things like that. And then, uh, I was in the UX field, like I said, up through information architecture into the broader UX. And then I, I fell in love with user research and I carved a path, carved a path forward to do just that. And it's been incredibly satisfying. Is there something about you as a researcher, uh, whether it's maybe the product of those experiences or anything else? Like what's, I think the Cruel de Vil uh, anecdote is an interesting one. That's sort of an evolution. I don't know, anything else that would characterize, uh, we talked about leadership a bit, but I'm thinking about doing the research. How do you, what, what's informed that? Yeah, you know, uh, I love research because I love hearing people's stories. And I only, it's funny, I only read nonfiction And so I'm just very curious. I love hearing, I love new experiences and I love hearing people's stories. And I also love distilling that down, finding, you know, finding those nuggets. And I I love the moment you talk about this actually in your book, Steve, but you talk about getting from question answer to question story. That is such a satisfying moment when it happens in a, in an interaction with a user. And I never get tired of that. And in fact, every time, you know, we can be working on a large ethnographic study and you think, okay, you know, we've got 25 public library patrons or we've got 22 physicians we are going to be speaking with. And I always walk out of every session, you know, you're drained and you're exhausted, but it's that feeling of you just, you just ran a marathon and it's the greatest feeling in the world because people just shared their stories with you and you get to take those stories. You're obligated. I mean, that's such a privilege to have someone share that information about how they interact, how how they live their life. And then you get to come back and represent that through their words and through their stories to product developers and owners. I just think that's the best work in the world. I love how you describe it. And the, the it's hard, but you feel good after. And you know, uh, it, it's so true. It is true. And that's why we joke, you know, that as a researcher, you're like a Navy SEAL. I mean, minus the incredible, uh, minus that, that, torturous training process, but we have different training we go through, but you have to kind of, you need to be able to be dropped into any situation, adapt quickly, find your way, get your answers by making people, you know, you have to make them comfortable and then you got to go and you got to go back and you've got to, you know, deliver what you said you were going to deliver. And so we... 
we work hard to find those. We work hard to excavate and to uncover what's there. And I'll tell you something, my family and I are in the process of moving now. And as I think about, I I always say that moving, moving is an analogy for these, you know, these design excavations and these changes, these product, product evolutions, because when you move every single thing in your house, you either have to, you have to hold it in your hands and you have to make a decision about it. It, does it stay? Does it go? And when we think about changing products, evolving platforms, like we have to look at every aspect. So the research is comprehensive. We have to look at every single piece of it. We have to understand users in all aspects of their lives. And we have to make decisions about, does it stay? Does it go? Does it change? And how? So what else should I have asked you about? One question that we are asked often uh, is, are you guys the user experience group? Are you UX? And we say we're user research. And I think user experience is a different configuration at every company. And we at EBSCO... We've tried a couple of different versions and the version that works now is the user experience because of our diverse product set. You know, we have we have corporate products and medical products and school products and we have, you know, a digital magazine product called Flipster for the public library. All these products are so different and these services are different and so there is no universal user experience because the user is is so different. So what we do is user experience is a responsibility that falls to the product managers and product directors within each of those product pods. But user research is central. So user experience is not centralized because of the differences in all of the products. But user research is centralized because I will tell you, having done the research, 60-year-old physicians and 16-year-old students, their searches and their strategies for searching are not as different as you might believe they are. So there are similarities. And when we learn about people's process, we can apply, we can extend some of those findings across different markets, I think more than you can when you're thinking about a product experience. So is user experience part of the product market, the product management organization? User experience falls within product management, meaning it's a responsibility. It's not a centralized group. It's decentralized within the product pods. And I think over time, you know, these models will evolve, but that's where we are now because we, we've tried on a couple of occasions to have it a little more central and it just didn't take off as it should. So I think over time we will continue to revisit that. But right now, user experience falls as a responsibility as, you know, a product experience within the product pods. I think, you know, these conversations are, they they often cover a key point that you made, which is like, here's where it works for us right now. Uh, And these are things that are evolving. But I like how you're talking about there's, you know, there's a, uh, there's a responsibility, there's an action, there's a task. um, And then there's a team or a job title or a department. And that I think sometimes we conflate the two of them when we talk about uh, who does what, how is it structured? Um, there's, like, there's activities that have to take place and then there's, well, who does those activities and what do we call them? Yeah. And there's a, there's a sense of, if you, I think the challenge in centralizing UX is you're trying to be everything to everyone and I, that gets challenging. And then you're, you're, you're not as close to the products as you might be. But when we're in, in user research, when we conduct research, we have the product managers with us. I mean, they're, they're the co they're, they're working on that research with us. They're sitting on the floor of that, of that, uh, hotel room in Las Vegas where the student is conducting research and they're watching it right along with us, which actually brings up a great point about user research. When you are doing user research in the wild, be safe, 
make sure you build in uh, safety measures for your team. I mean, we have to meet strangers. And so be safe about that. And that's something that we talk about. And it's something we accommodate for because we're going to our users. So we don't go alone and we make sure that we're safe about it. Because I'll tell you something, uh, even I had moments where conducting usability tests, you know, you're, you're conducting these sometimes after work and it's dark. And then the usability test staff at the testing center has gone home and you're in this testing studio and these participants you've never met before are coming in. That's something I want to write. I want to write some form of a blog post or an article about that because that's something that I don't hear talked about a lot, but safety in conducting user research is, should be paramount, paramount for all of us. And one of the things that I've struggled with, and I think I wrote about this in interviewing users, is the the difference between uh, being unsafe and feeling uncomfortable. And that, I mean, my suspicion is uh, if you don't kind of check yourself, it's easy to think that one is the other. Um, Agreed. And, and not not to minimize being unsafe in any way, but um, there's just there's feelings of being out of control. There's feelings of just being out of your comfort zone. If you're not comfortable being uncomfortable you might not know the difference between being uncomfortable and being unsafe. Yeah. And, and as I said, part of, part of research is new experiences, new people, environments that are not your own, not your own native environment. And so certainly if you're someone who's easily thrown off your game, user research might not be for you because you're put in all sorts of circumstances and people will say the unexpected. There have been, we always talk about this, you know, you'll get asked for a job. I've had researchers who've been asked for a date. I mean, it's really, I mean, the unexpected does happen, does and will happen. Yeah, I've wondered a lot about, you know, uh, the experience of being a woman in user research and the experience of being a man and that if there's an aspect to that that like men just couldn't possibly believe. And maybe that's this is about being a woman in our society also that men couldn't possibly understand. But that example of being asked for a date seems like, oh, yeah, I bet that happens. And, you know, when I'll be honest with you, when when we were in Las Vegas doing the interview, I had recruited the student I was meeting with off of Craigslist. And so I was meeting a stranger that we'd recruited off Craigslist for a research interview when I was out at a library conference in Las Vegas. And I asked my colleague, Dave, to come with us. And Dave is very fit and very muscular. And I asked him because he was part of the project, but I also asked him because he's strong. And I was I had recruited someone off Craigslist and that was my deal with my husband. He said, "Uh, I'm nervous about this. I said, well, I'm going to bring this guy, Dave. And he said, "Okay, well, I feel a little better about this. But you have to think about safety. And in that situation, I I wasn't I wasn't protecting against feeling uncomfortable. I was protecting against, you know, all the crazy stories you've heard about Craigslist, I guess. Is um, yeah, is being asked for a date an unsafe experience? I guess it depends on how, but uh, you know, I'm not even sure how to ask this question. But sort of separate from the Craigslist experience, how does how do women in the field the set of the set of things that may the the, the type of content or, or conversations that might come up with, and, and how do we even frame that? I know it's a great question, and think about it. Think about part of the Cruella Deville, like serving it up cold. No one's asking Cruella Deville on a date. Do you know what I mean? I mean, she's like the ice queen. So who's going to ask this this icy researcher who's not even giving a sense of like, am, am I doing the right thing on this? Am I passing this test on the website? So part of being comfortable with people is being comfortable, but still having boundaries, still being the researcher. And part of it is not being alone in a circumstance that would make you uncomfortable or make a conversation like that too convenient. And, you know, I think I personally, 
I can sense when we might be getting off topic or we might, or the conversation might be getting too comfortable for the participant. And so then I just move it forward. But I think this is an area where some, some sharing of these thoughts and experiences would help the larger research community to think about these issues and hopefully not have to be in a situation where they're uncomfortable or unprepared. I'm going to pitch hard for the war stories that, that, that I've been having people talk about for the last few years. Um, with the aim, I mean, there's many more circumstances that come up than just the one that, that, that we're talking about. But my, my goal is yours to hear these stories start to, um, you know, let people, if nothing else, be aware that they can, these are, these are the kinds of things that can happen. And so, you know, there isn't, that doesn't seem to be a one size fits all right way to handle it. But to, like you said, the Navy SEALs have to adapt. You have to adapt and you have to adapt and, and you have to know your boundaries and you have to be comfortable with uncomfortable conversations. And so I was just having this conversation with my husband the other night about, uh, being comfortable with conflict. And we talked about that as a, as a trait of, of good management. And I said, you know, as a researcher, you have to be because sometimes you're putting a product or something in front of a user and it may evoke some emotion. They may be upset about it. They may make that personal against you. So I, as a researcher, it's a, it's a requirement. You have to be comfortable with some level of conflict because not everything is smooth sailing in these research sessions. And so conflict could simply be uh, asserting boundaries. And it may feel if you're someone that's kind of that doesn't that's trying to avoid conflict, drawing a boundary, which could be I liked your example before of just moving things along. That's that's asserting a boundary. And that may feel like conflict to someone. Conflict isn't get out of here. I'm going to punch you in the face. It doesn't have to be dramatic. No. And the conflict, right. The conflict could be uh, the conflict or the the confrontation could be as simple as you're not being responsive to a direction they're taking the conversation in. And, you know, I think as we, as we move away from methods like the focus group, you know, the in-person focus group where you have, that's not a method that we use often because I think there's so many challenges with it. So you're moving to these individual, you know, you're, you're playing Charlie Rose and someone else is sitting across from you and, and you're understanding their lives, right? You're, you're kind of moderating the narrative of, of your users, your participants life and their experience. And as we move to these one-on-one, -on -one, the deeper exploration, it gets more personal and the, the stakes are higher and being boundaried is important. It's important as a researcher. It's important as a person. Uh, it's, it's important for the participant to understand the parameters of the session. And that you, as the researcher, have permission to continue to reinforce those boundaries. So as researchers, one of our challenges is trying to figure out what should our temperature be? And the temperature being about that level of interaction with empathy with our participants, our users. And, you know, you don't want to have yourself dialed all the way down into the freezing zone where you're disconnected from the user and you've got that Cruella de Vil phenomenon happening. But you also don't want to be so over the top connected and warm that it becomes like a friendship conversation and you have difficulty stepping back and still having those boundaries as the researcher. So this question of temperature, this question of, uh, you know, how accessible are you? We haven't solved it yet, but if I, if I had to look at, if I had to look at a temperature scale, I'd say it's in the, you know, the medium to warm is the ideal, the approachable, approachable, medium, warm temperature. 
And so just if I can, you know, pile on your metaphor a little bit, there's, um, there's your internal temperature and there's your external temperature. Um, and so, I mean, I've interviewed people about sad things. I, I imagine you have as well. Talk to people about situations that are sad. There's a difference to me between how you feel uh, and then what, and then how you, how you do or don't exhibit that feeling. That's a great, that's a great point because part of, part of our research has been focused on physicians and nurses and, you know, because EBSCO has strong presence in the medical market. So when we did a large study of physicians, what we ended up doing was talking to physicians in all different, uh, all different specialties. And one particular physician stands out in my mind because she, uh, she saw patients and she, she, uh, she delivered end of life care and her stories were unbelievably touching and several were very sad. And it was hard not to cry because some of these stories were really quite sad. And I think what she saw, so inside, you know, inside you're really feeling the pain of what she's describing about families saying goodbye to family, you know, other family members at the end of life. And, but to the outward, to the participant, to this physician, this really lovely, just wonderful, compassionate human being to her, I think the researchers, we just looked somber. You know, we looked like she had told us something serious, which she had, and we looked somber and we nodded and we were respectful of that. But I don't think she needed us to cry to know that we had feelings. I think the way we handled it inside, I, I think we had stronger feelings than we let on. But, you know, we treated the information soberly and somberly because it was, you know, it, it was sad. It was sad. And, and that's part of uncovering people's truths that is so incredibly rewarding and so if I go into a session like that and, you know, I use that approach that was recommended to me years ago, the like serve it up cold, I don't deserve the privilege to, of being in that room. I don't deserve the true honor of speaking with these participants who are helping to evolve our products and, you know, show us their lives. I don't, it, you don't deserve the job of a researcher if you're not truly empathetic to your user. Sure. I think, I think what that, that story illustrates that, that seems very important is that um, you had the feelings. You didn't, uh, in the experience with the end-of-life professionals, you, you had the feelings inside. You acknowledged for yourself that you were having those feelings, but you chose in the context of research how to act on or how to express those feelings and that you made a different choice that you would make in a social situation, uh, you know, any anything that's outside the context of doing research, you chose how to hear, how to react differently than you would. Yes. And that is, that is key because the participant, the person you are speaking with needs to feel like the researcher is in control. So if I, if someone starts sobbing uncontrollably, all of a sudden the, the physician might be worried about the researcher. And then it creates this shift in the dynamic that it, it's hard to recover from. And so it's the same as if someone tells you a joke or says something funny. If you laugh so hard that you can't regain your composure, it shifts the dynamics of the interaction. So it's, that's where having the boundaries and it's, it's not so different than being a teacher or being a parent that, you know, your kid make, your kid says something silly or, um, you know, 
does something and, and you think, okay, well, do I want to reinforce, do I want, how do I need to react in this moment to convey the message that, okay, we're going to continue. We're still going forward or, you know, we're, we're still going to have a nap, even though you just said this thing that's really silly and we could laugh about it for two hours. So you have to keep the research, you have to keep the research moving forward, but you have to convey that when someone, you have to convey that you're listening and you're processing what they're saying. So when someone's telling you a very sad story, when you're somber and when you are listening intently and making eye contact that that says i'm i'm here with you i hear what you're saying and it's registering and i understand that it's serious i get it and if you i think it's different with a professional but if you i mean this probably happened to all of us we've been someone who's had something difficult happen to us and we talk to other people about it and they say i don't know what to say or or uh or something and that we end up in the role of of trying Com- to help them. Yeah, we end up in the comforter role. And keep, you know, something I always say to other researchers is you have to be very clear that the research session is a judgment-free zone. Because one of the challenges we have is when you're researching and interviewing students, sometimes they fear that there's a right way to do what you're asking them to describe and they don't know what it is. So you don't want people to feel that they have to say, well, I'm sure there's a better way to do it, but this is how I do it. You want to, you, you want them to feel comfortable and you know, show us how you do X instead of, and you don't want them to be apologetic and you don't want them to, you don't want them to feel that what they're showing you isn't good enough. And often during those, I mentioned those live focus, those live student demonstrations that we do for, with some customers that are so enlightening. We start off and we talk about, you know, your, your act of conducting research, your act of information seeking is uniquely you. We want to learn about it. There's no right. There's no wrong. Whatever works for you is what we want you to show us. So we really spend a lot of time on that at the beginning of those sessions because we have a room full of librarians. We have a room full of library staff watching someone conduct research. And so we don't want them to feel intimidated. I had, a, I had a client that I worked with that said to me that um, that sympathizing is judging. Uh, we think of judging as sort of the right or wrong, but she was saying, you know, if you if you say, oh, that's awful, she said, she, I'm not going to do justice to how she put it, but it's it's taking a a value framework that is yours and putting it on their story. Right, you're handing your worldview to someone and saying oh, it's okay. Or you're making a judgment and there's no place for that. And so we hear it all. And I mean, that's why we talk about, you know, anything can happen in these research sessions. We hear it all. And we hear, you know, we hear students talk about how they conduct scholarly research. And sometimes the techniques they're talking about aren't aren't necessarily scholarly. You know, if they're talking about, you know, looking on Wikipedia, which isn't a peer review, which is not a, a, a citable source. And so we don't, stop them and say, well, did you know? Because we're not there to fix anything. We're not there to teach. This is not a teaching moment. This is understanding. And this is actually exploration. And one of the things we try to do in our group is we, we try not to say, when people come to us and say, okay, we want to validate, we don't go out to validate. We go out to explore. And in that process of exploration and excavation, you know, we're lucky enough to unearth findings, but we do so because we're listening and not putting our own framework on the participants or the users. Well, Kate, let's wrap it up there. It's been a really uh, excellent experience to talk with you. And thanks so much for everything that you shared with us today. Steve, thank you. And I look forward to seeing you in Boston someday soon. I look forward to that too. Thanks. Okay, take care. And that's it for this episode of Dollars to Donuts. We're very lucky to have these great sponsors. 
Balsamic, the maker of mock-ups, the rapid wireframing software that combines the simplicity of paper sketching with the power of a digital tool. The Pinterest research team, who work with designers, engineers, and everyone in between to build the world's most inspiring catalog of ideas. And Airbnb's experience research team, making authentic local experiences possible anywhere in the world. Our theme music was written and performed by Bruce Todd. You can find links for this episode, read the transcript, check out other episodes, and subscribe at portugal.com slash podcast. Go now and buy a copy of Interviewing Users from Amazon or from Rosenfeld Media. Get in touch with me at portugal.com and let's start exploring how we can work together. 